0: Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Following closely on the back of the conversation I had with my school friend, Spike Coburn, today I'll attempt to read a chapter from my book. This chapter is called Back to School. In truth, this was one of the most complex and painful chapters. It was a minefield of adolescent angst, sexuality, happiness, loneliness, bullying, Actually, everything that's normal to the average teenager, but add into that a very real civil war, which undoubtedly altered the mindset of the boys at our school. Anyway, enjoy the chapter, Back to School. It was the dogs that really began the whole sulky thing. They always knew, as soon as those battered, ugly black tin trunks were hauled out, the dogs started to sulk. Once the dogs started, then we kids started. It was contagious. The holidays were over, and in a few days, the freedom we had enjoyed would be gone. Mum was also feeling it and generally managed to keep herself busy, lovingly sewing our name tags onto every piece of clothing, from undies to blazers and riding helmets. Even the cricket bats had our names stenciled on them and the inside of our garters with a black marker pen. List after list of required clothing was bought from McCulloch and Bothwell in Salisbury. From a wizard old salesman with dreadful halitosis, a Dickensian apparition. I'm sure he was a very nice man, but for most kids, he represented boarding school and everything that comes with it. And those tin trunks represented... Our lack of freedom at the beginning of term, but also they represented freedom at the end of each term. They signaled the start of the holidays. I don't know what it was about our parents. At the end of the term, it was always the wood kids left alone sitting on their tin trunk while all the other kids had been collected and gone home. It didn't bother us. We kept telling ourselves as the dust settled from the departing cars filled with excited, chattering children. There beneath the fir trees, sitting calmly on their trunks, were the three wood children. This was part and parcel of being a wood. Having an older brother and sister at the same school did help a little bit, but only marginally. Mandy was in the girls' hostel at the other end of the school grounds. Duncan was at an age where looking after the little brother was frowned upon. I remember spending the first week sneaking off to play games under the fir trees with my sister and her best friend, Peggy Strong. I was a six-year-old boy, utterly traumatized, and needed to cling to something or someone who connected me back to my home. But this came to an end when the older boys accused me of having pink fleas running around brushing their clothes and jumping as if they were being bitten was enough to send me confused and shamefaced back to the hostel <gasps> those damn pink fleas they were persistent and they had come back to haunt me later in life everything was so strange, so new, regimented by the clanging of the bell, six of the best with a cane for any wrongdoing, a clip across the air for lack of concentration and rules. They kept giving me those simple two-word instructions such as stand here or go there or don't talk and reminding me with relish what was going to happen to me if I got it wrong. "'And do you understand?' they would bellow as if I was stone deaf. "'Even the uniform had me scratching my head in puzzlement. "'Having grown up without shoes and only ever having owned a pair of faded red shorts, "'my first experience of school were a rapid learning curve. "'I now had to learn to tie laces, not a tie, use garters for my socks,' not to mention having to make a bed with hospital corners and then try and sleep in that bed at night to the snuffling sounds of a dozen kids crying into their pillows. Like all schools, there were those teachers who were kind and sweet and lovable. My first teacher at KG2, or kindergarten too, was Miss Blewett. Pretty, vivacious, and endowed with fabulously large breasts. Few boys could resist her sex appeal. There was the sporty, handsome Mr. Benson, who ran standard four. Drove a blue elf Sud, sudden, went out with Miss McCarthy, who had the standard one class. Miss McCarthy was the archetypal 60s and 70s flower child with long, straight hair, fabulous eye shadow... And fashionable clobber. I was slightly in love with Miss McCarthy and one day just kept walking past her classroom, pulling funny faces back and forth like someone released from an institution. Eventually, she came out and gripped me tightly by my earlobe in front of everyone, loudly said, Are you going to apologize? Apologize? Am I going to what? The word sounded positively dangerous. I let the strange word with odd syllables swirl around in my brain for a little bit and then responded with a no. I was quite emphatic about that. After an initial silence, she looked at me with those perfectly raised eyebrows and gently asked, Do you know what apologise means? Ashamed, I answered, Um, no. I was released on bail, much to the laughter of the senior boys. The housemaster at the boys' hostel, and possibly the man who kept the whole show on the road, was Mr Nightingale. His acerbic tongue and love of the cane was legendary. Don't cry unless there's blood was his motto. course, stolen from local housewife, Isabel Simons. He ran the top class standard five. Few, if any, boys were immune to his acerbic barbs and his stinging rattan. Had he not been an excellent teacher, I think he would have been loathed. However, despite his bouts of anger and daily whipping sessions in his office... He was strangely adored. Perhaps this was an early form of Stockholm Syndrome. It wasn't uncommon to hear Mr Nightingale remark to some unruly child, for God's sake go and play in the traffic. Or his favorite, would somebody please go and drown that child. He loved labels and would call us three children Wood Major, Wood Minor, and Wood Minimus, with the youngest member of the family, being me, often bent over his desk, receiving four of the best. If junior school was a shock, high school as a boarder 150 miles from home was the royal flush of royal flushes. According to many, my high school, Prince Edward, was the best school in the country by far. But with that in mind, I'll be the first to admit that P.E., as it was affectionately known, was a disappointment. I know, I know, I know everyone who grew up in that milieu will gasp and disagree with me. But what you learn at school is often only made apparent later in life. And I've always felt PE lacked in so many ways a beggar's belief. Kids who went to top private schools, St George's, Falcon, Peterhouse, three of the best private schools south of the equator, were often imbued with a sense of determination, knowledge, ambition and more importantly, a feeling of belonging that, well, that I felt I lacked. Prince Edward was established in 1898, making it the second oldest school in the country after sporting rivals St. George's College. The architecture was beautiful, designed by Sir Herbert Baker, who also designed Hruitskir, the stunning Dutch-gabled home of Cecil John Rhodes in Cape Town. The ancient syringa-tree-lined avenues and massive old jacarandas were, well, they were incredible. The school badge was a crown and three ostrich feathers granted to it by Prince Edward, who was later King Edward VIII. In the 1920s, the school colours were maroon and dark green and the uniforms were rather bizarrely, considering the intense African heat, straw boaters, blazers and grey flannel trousers. The school motto, Tot facienda parum factum, so much to do, so little done, is attributed to Cecil John Rhodes' last words. The school war cry, on the other hand, was, well, was slightly less sophisticated. Let me see if I can get it right. shh, Slubber, Wah! Slubber, Wah! Boomer, like a boomer, like a wah-wah-wah! Boomer, like a boomer, like a cha-cha-cha! Shh. Who are we? We are, we are, can't you see? We are, we are, can't you guess? We are, we are, P-E-S. Hai Kuzumba Rugby Tigers. P E S. And by now, boaters are flying through the air. It's not exactly high poetry. Our headmaster at the time, Raymond Suttle, was a well, I'm going to say this, a rather ineffectual man living within the shadows of the school. I doubt if he had much control over the kids. Yet there was always someone out there to keep control, to give us that clip across the ear. And that was the teacher we called Wart. derald Wart. His nickname wasn't that much better than his real name, Mr. Cock. With a large, well-rounded profile, much like that of Churchill or Hitchcock, Old Wart ruled Salou House, and indeed, many felt, ruled Prince Edward's school in an autocratic, domineering fashion. A confirmed bachelor, they say, Old Wart was as gay as a year on Saturn is long. While none of those rumours were founded on anything, This extraordinary man never got married and he gave his life to the school and not to a human of either sex, as far as I know. Wart did have taste, however, in abundance. His flat attached to Salu House was furnished lavishly, hung with beautiful paintings and the walls covered in flocked paper. His garden was immaculate, as was his attire, if not slightly outdated and staid. All that was lacking was a carnation in his buttonhole and a silver-tipped cane. He was also a great lover of the arts and encouraged us to do drama and choir practice. Yet, for all his artsy traits, he was tough. He had to be, to have to stick it out at that job for nearly thirty years. Yes, he was slow on his feet and yet fast as a viper with the cane. How many times had I pulled down my brooks and bent over that wonderfully polished Rhodesian mukwa table to receive three or four or even six of the best? Oh, rubbing our backside with methylated spirits beforehand sometimes helped but rarely did stuffing a newspaper or magazine down the back of our undies ever work. Old Wart was not dumb. He knew all the tricks in the book. And for that, he would grunt, you get one more. Whack! Hearing the smack of the cane on some poor kid's ass was a warning to all and sundry that Mr. Cock meant business. Unlike many teachers who thought the harder you struck, the better, Watt was adept with his cane, employing a wrist action that only a learned expert could ever understand, having had many years' experience. The bendy rod would always find its mark, always on your bum and always leaving the most fabulous blue-black bruises across lily-white skin. Other less adept teachers missed the mark, lashing the legs, or worse, flicking the cane around until it struck the groin. Six of the best was thankfully the most one could inflict on a student, but in truth rarely was a kid dished out the full quota. I believe I was given this accolade twice at Saloo House. To my delight, one year I made top marks, by that I mean, I came first in Salu House for having been given the most ducks or canings in a term. Mister Cock actually had a written record, comprising the time, date, name, age, crime, punishment, and even the type of cane he used. The ten millimeter nursery cane, or junior cane, the senior cane, or heavier type, frequently used for older children and the reformatory cane, reserved for the worst incorrigible juveniles. Cockwood summoned me to his office and showed me the large, well-worn ledger of Caning's Saloo House, 1975, and almost in a doting manner informing me that I was this year's winner, having had the most number of lashes one couldn't help sensing a certain amount of pride in Wart's voice. My credibility at school went up threefold. My chances of ever becoming a prefect diminished into an atomic-sized dot. Somehow those teachers didn't see the importance of this in the same way we kids did. Sadly, Mr. Cock retired to Johannesburg where he was murdered in his bed. An ignoble end to an extraordinary man who nurtured many a child through to adulthood. Mr. Cock, I salute you, or in the Matabili tradition, Bayete! Teachers were the only ones allowed to cane children, but prefects were given permission, without argument, to thrash kids with any other object that came to hand, such as trainers, rolled-up magazines, garrotting wire, fishing twine, or the back of the hand, so long as it was not a cane. Again, I have no idea why I managed to break the record. The first two years at high school, juniors had to be a skivvy or a fag in the British public school parlance. Generally, you were a fag to a prefect, but I, lucky bugger, was fagged to the head of house, Alan. As fate should have it, Alan was going out with my sister at the time, and for reasons that utterly baffled most people, me included, He thought it was best to give me a hiding every single day. I like to think he was worried that people might assume he was favouring me over other kids since he was, for want of a better word, my brother-in-law. I would love to be able to say that I, I used Alan to my advantage because he went out with Mandy. The truth was far more humdrum. Alan did not have the nickname of Edie, as in "Idi" as an mean for nothing. He was, to put it mildly, unreasonably tough on me. Good looking, yes! Great at sport, yes! And let's not forget, like so many bullies, utterly charming and endearing to those above him. But to me, he was hell. I tried to love him. I mean, I really tried to love him. Indeed, I even had a schoolboy crush on him, perhaps a knee-jerk reaction to having been beaten every day. I I'd no idea. It made no difference. At roll call each lunchtime, I would wait. Shepherd here. Southey present. Tate here. Thackray here. Ostaysen, Ja yeah. Van Helsing here. Willy Birch present. Would see me after lunch. Collective groan down the ranks. Ah. I mean, I I kind of got used to it in the end. Every day he found something wrong, some reason to beat me. I hadn't rolled his socks correctly or ironed his shirt properly or made his toasted breakfast in the manner he preferred. I might stop you here to point out that my skivvy skills were not that bad. I was not sloppy, nor was I forgetful of any of the things he accused me of day after day. And my punishment? Two or three really hard, stinging clouts across the backside with one of his sneakers, generally taken at a run for maximum impact. While I can safely say that I was getting used to these thrashings, one day I was just too exhausted and couldn't bear the thought of yet another perfectly shaped shoe mark across my buttocks, the Adidas logo, beautifully imprinted back to front on my bottom. So I offered Alan a bribe. My apple from lunch. Alan graciously took the apple and then promptly gave me an extra hiding for bribery. I never did understand this attitude, yet I was not always the only one being punished. You see, Iddy would frequently and for little reason put the entire house on detention over a weekend, making every kid from 13 to 17 years old weed the lawn or plant flowers or do some crappy thing under the guise of beautification of Salu House. Perhaps he saw himself as an empire builder. He needed to leave his mark and not just on my bum. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can tune into part two coming up soon. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.